Greetings. Welcome to the Ontic Protective Intelligence Podcast. I'm Chuck Randolph, Ontic's Chief Security Officer. From 30 years as a military officer and over 25 transforming corporate security teams to function beyond their traditional roles, protection, risk management, and threat mitigation have been front and center throughout my career. This podcast series will explore the turbulent world of risk, security, and protective strategies through conversations with leaders and innovators in the field. Now, on to the discussion. Kurt McKenzie is the Director of Physical Security at MongoDB. He is a retired FBI supervisory special agent and has more than 24 years of diverse experience investigating financial crimes, narcotics trafficking, terrorism, and organized crime, both domestically and abroad. Kurt knows how to identify and address vulnerabilities and potential threats. As a special agent, Kurt was assigned to several high-profile investigations, including the September 11th investigation and the Amerithrax case. He also successfully investigated numerous bank, wire, and healthcare fraud, as well as money laundering cases, which exposed critical flaws in the banking system. Kurt, welcome to Ontic's Protective Intelligence Podcast. Thank you, Chuck. It's, uh, it's an honor to be here, and thanks for inviting me. You know... A lot of folks in the in the Antic uh, environment, if you will, in our you know in our tribe, if if you will, you know, we have a lot of folks that come from you know the government sector or maybe the military sector, uh, public service into the private service. And uh, while I want to go into that, I, I want to kind of pause because I know you spent quite you know you're retired FBI supervisory special agent. And you spent a lot of time at the Bureau learning and building a skill set. How is it that you found yourself uh, wanting to be part of uh, the FBI or wanting to be part of public service? I actually found the FBI, I don't want to say by accident, because obviously everybody knows the FBI. But uh, when I was very young, I was in my mid-20s. I happened to meet a couple of FBI agents and engage in conversation with them. And uh, this is back in the day when you could hand somebody a resume and things may or may not happen. Mm -hmm. And I uh, gave them a resume and I ended up getting recruited. I actually joined the FBI as a civilian forensic scientist at first. Um, my, my background's in the sciences. And I joined the DNA analysis unit. I did that for a few years and then uh, transitioned over to being a special agent. Went to Quantico, graduated, and... It's been a wild ride ever since. Now, of course, the two FBI agents you met in the past, both of their names were like John Smith or something, right? That is correct. <laughs> <laughs> now, it's interesting, though. They recruited you and you came in on the science piece, uh, which is different. A lot of people, especially, I guess I'm aging myself here, like, hey, you're always told you need a legal degree or an accounting degree. What was it about science and especially science in support of you know, one of the America's leading law enforcement intelligence units attracted you? So historically, the original FBI special agents were all accountants and attorneys. Mm -hmm. And the Bureau began to transition a few years after that and, and continues to evolve to this day. But the primary quality, whenever people ask me, hey, I want to be an FBI special agent, what do I need to study? What do I need to do? I always tell people, Whatever you do, make sure that you demonstrate the ability to solve problems, right? That you have critical thinking, critical analysis skills. And today, 
probably 25% of, of the special agent corps are actually former scientists and engineers for exactly that reason. 25% are still accountants and finance folks, another 20% are attorneys, but the core of our people have you know, demonstrated analytical ability because again, your job is to solve problems, right? The biggest right. problems in the criminal world. And then that's what the Bureau looks for. Hope I answered your question. With that. No, you did. And it's, it's interesting to me because if you think about it, like, Hey, how did we get Al Capone? How do we get several people? It, the devil clearly is in the details. You know, we got them through an accounting error. We got them through, uh, some small factor in their, you know, maybe their criminal plan, if you will. Exactly. But the idea to say like, look, look, we need to look at this critical thinking, uh, in my personal opinion, is a dying art, as well as active listening and being able to say, cool, we have something, let's break this down into pieces that we can, we can then look at, identify the anomalies, and then from those anomalies, look at it and say, is this fact? Is this fiction? And then as Sherlock Holmes might say, whatever's left is, is, is probable. That is true. That is 100% accurate. And, and that is that is actually, despite what people may hear on television, the news, whatever channel you watch, that is the core of the FBI. That is how we work. Um, and that is the culture that's promoted. Your critical thinking ability, your opinion about somebody doesn't really matter. You have to have facts. You have to have proof. That is how we think. So what was the onus of, um, if you will, scientist McKenzie working DNA to special agent McKenzie? It wasn't a big transition. So I was already a civilian FBI employee mm -hmm. and uh, the Bureau does have an internal transition program. You still have to apply. You still have to pass the physical fitness test and all that stuff. Sure. Um, but when you work DNA analysis in the FBI, it is essentially mayhem. All of your cases are sexual assaults and, and murders, right? That serial killings, that is what you do. So you are working with law enforcement teams to catch very, very bad people. So it's a natural transition to go from catching them in the laboratory to being on the street. You've already seen their handiwork. You're learning how they think. You want to take a more active role in, in catching bad people. And then it was a very natural transition. So it's interesting. You're looking at this from behind the plexiglass wall um, and then suddenly saying, hey, look, I want to take a more active approach. What did you take with you from the, you know, being a scientist in the DNA as a civilian into the way that you conducted or, or looked at investigations? The same obsessive compulsive behavior that I had when I was a scientist. <laughs> and I'm not being funny about that. It's when you work DNA analysis, the thing you understand is that you're dealing with crime at a molecular level, right? You cannot make mistakes, right? Because again, when the DNA results come back, somebody could go to jail or potentially be executed because again, these are all very serious crimes. So you learn a meticulous approach to your job that you will take with you forever. Uh, and I'm not saying this just to toot our own horns. I've worked with law enforcement agencies all around the world in the last 24 years. And the FBI is the best group of forensic scientists I've ever come across. Mm -hmm. Now, it's interesting. I'll take a pause here because there's probably somebody out there listening saying, great, Kurt, Chuck, this is awesome. Is there anything I can do right now to start thinking? I love this idea of like looking at crime at a molecular level. 
looking at your job as at a molecular level, how can somebody weaponize that right now for their own career or for their own work? Just as kind of a quick aside. I guess the best way is to, uh, the the street phrase is check yourself, right? Uh I'm always, exactly. I'm always questioning, have I searched every angle here? Have I looked at every possibility? So it's a constant conversation in your head about the best way to address a problem. Am I resourcing this adequately? Have I reached out to the right people for advice if I don't know exactly what's going on? Have I looked at this from every angle? That is the way I approached not only my work in the laboratory, but when I became a street agent. Yeah, I I love it. You know, Kurt, when I went through, uh, you know, retired lieutenant colonel, and when I went through staff school, they spent quite a bit of time talking about how do you approach, uh, and how worth discussing here, how do you approach problem solving? I mean, you know, two plus two is four. Six minus two is four as well. So I love the idea of like, what is the approach vector that you're looking at to look at the problem? Because there could be unintended consequences, second, third order effect, all these things. I mean, that that very scientific approach is probably what led you to be on so many task force and be forefront in in so many, uh, uh, I guess, big cases, if you will. Exactly, and and it, and it extrapolates out, right? So so part of that thought process is you want to involve others in that thought process as well, right? right. It's, it's, you don't want to be just a sounding board in your head and you don't want to surround yourself with yes men or like-minded people. You want to surround yourself with people who will tell you, who have you know the, the right experience and have something to bring to the table, who will tell you, hey, you're screwing up or hey, let's do this together. Or, hey, you're on the right track or hey, have you thought about this? Yeah, I love that too, because we can get caught up, especially, I don't care whether you're in a corporate environment or a a public environment, we can get caught up in our own echo chamber. And before we know it, bias has walked into the room, we haven't recognized them, and they're sitting there and they have a place in our head. And we're suddenly saying everything we're doing is correct, or I'm, I'm going down a path in this idea of like building in that stop check, if you will, with having a diverse team of people that will say, have we looked at this? Have we looked at that? Have we kind of, as my wife might say, have we looked at all the blind spots uh, and around them? Exactly. Because you, you know, being an individual, and again, even if you're having these conversations with yourself, you may miss something, right? So it's important. And again, I'm, I'm in the process of doing this right now, mm-hmm. is as you're building a team, or even if you're not building a team, let's say you've transitioned out of government, you're now in the corporate sector, you're working in a security team or you're running a security team, it's important to reach out to the people who may have something to co- contribute to your mission, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, because again, there may be something you're missing or they may just have a different set of eyes and could lend you valuable insight into yeah. potential issues or problems that you're trying to solve. We'll get back to the conversation in just a moment, but first I wanted to tell you about the Ontix Center for Connected Intelligence. In the world of safety, security, and protection, we know that gathering and sharing information is crucial. That is why we created the Ontix Center for Connected Intelligence. The center is a hub for the ongoing exchange of security strategies and best practices, insights on current and past trends, and sharing valuable learnings through expert discussion and analysis. 
It's made up of seasoned experts with decades of experience across a wide range of disciplines. To find blogs, podcasts, webinars, white papers, and more, check out the center by visiting ontic.co slash center. That's ontic.co backslash center. Kurt, you were, you were in the Bureau, what, over 24 years, and you did everything, I mean, financial crimes, narcotics, trafficking, terrorism, organized crime, both here and internationally, rewinding and giving this meticulous uh, um, obsession, if you will, on critical thinking as a, as a, a cornerstone to your, to your job. I mean, were those all approached the same way? Or when you looked at those various areas like financial crimes, narcotics, terrorism, et cetera, did you have to pause and consider how am I going to approach this problem? Or was there kind of a, a curt method, if you will? There, there really was a curt method, which was honestly the bureau method, right? So mm-hmm. the first thing is to learn what you don't know. Mm-hmm. Second thing is to apply basic investigative techniques that the FBI teaches you. How do you conduct surveillance? Uh, the legal process being the most over, most important overall consideration, right? You don't want to break the law trying to stop somebody from breaking the law. Right. So you have to educate yourself um, not only about the law, but about the group that you're looking at, the people you're looking at. Learn everything about them. Learn who their associates are. Learn how they move money. Learn as much as you possibly can from everywhere you can. And I approached every single investigation the same way. I assumed that I didn't know everything. I assumed that I didn't know what the answers were. Mm-hmm. And I did not assume that this was going to be easy. Matter of fact, quite the opposite. I, I generally enjoyed the more difficult investigations more than the, the easier ones. Not sure. that there are a lot of easy investigations in the FBI, but the point is the bigger the challenge, the more I was into it. Yeah. A complex problem to solve, if you will, the, the Gordian knot. Uh, sometimes you can solve it by just cutting through it, but other times it does need to be unwound. I mean, I agree with you. I mean, it's intellectually stimulating as well as you can attach it to a why. This goes back to what, you know, it's it's helping citizens, it's helping people. True. Uh, so that's awesome. You, so you worked on everything, though, from like the opioid crisis. And I remember uh, first time I heard about you, it was about, you know, if, with the Amerithrax issue that we had uh, a few years back. I mean, what are some particularly complex issues that come to mind in terms of your work in the Bureau? I will separate what I assisted on versus what I sure. uh, led, right? So um, I'm always very careful about that because I don't want to claim credit where other people deserve more credit. Well, um, I, Kurt, I think most people listening here understand that, look, it you know, as Stanley McChrystal said, it takes a network to defeat a network or, you know, as Hillary Clinton said, it takes a village. So there is no one person national asset that's doing soup to nuts. So I I, I appreciate your comment on that. True. And then thanks for that. Yeah. the, The point is that I, from the very beginning, I was working on national and international level cases. Mm-hmm. And once I became an agent, my first gigantic case is I was part of the September 11th investigation. Mm-hmm. Uh, because again, once I became an agent, I was transferred to Miami. And if you remember, 15 of the September 11th hijackers lived in South Florida. Right. 
And immediately after that, then the anthrax attacks hit. And because of my background, I was volunteered into that investigation and spent a few years on that as well. So um, I didn't run those investigations, but I was a part of that. And as I matured as an investigator, mm -hmm. the Bureau's process is to give you time to mature, to prove yourself on smaller, less complex investigations of your own and then eventually let you lead larger, more complex investigations. So as time went on, they became bigger and more complex and more money involved. Um, right. The list honestly goes on forever. When I worked frauds, I think my largest fraud case that, that I was a case agent on, so I was one of the people responsible for the investigation, was a $400 million attempted healthcare fraud case where the, the wow. subject stole, successfully stole $200 million. And yeah, it was huge. And, and that became normal for me to work cases that size. So, um, you get used to a certain operating operational tempo, like you'd say in the military. So it was yeah. uh, eye opening. Well, in particular, you know, post nine 11, where, you know, especially being down in South Florida, what was the feeling at the time in the Bureau and the law enforcement community down there? I mean, Look, it was a tragic event that we still feel today, but it was a galvanizing moment for many things uh, in the U.S. And, and many of the Five Eyes nations. I mean, if you if you can, I mean, what was it like? It was a nightmare for, for all Americans in general. Um, but if you were in the FBI at that point, you felt an even greater responsibility to get to the bottom of what happened, right? Because the American people were expecting you to do that. Right. Um, and this is not an exaggeration, but right after 9-11, I and most of my coworkers were working seven days a week, 15 plus hours a day. That went on for months. Yeah. And that, uh, that tempo did not slow down for, for a little while. So it was a lot of work, but nobody complained. Nobody asked for overtime. Nobody cared. Just keep going, keep going and, and figure this out. No, the, the tenacity of the Bureau already is, is world renowned. And then on top of that, you know, on our home turf, on our time, you know, yeah. I, I can only imagine the, the, the extreme focus that went in, into that. Yes. Um, and, and that's exactly what it was. And it was, um, it was a roll your sleeves up, shut up and figure it out. Yep. And, and there was no complaining. Everybody just did what we had to do. Um, a lot of people, I did this as well. I had other open investigations. They all got shelved. Mm -hmm. um, well, of course, all eyes on this. Correct. Correct. And the, the one thing, that, the one good thing that came out of September 11th, what little there was good that came out of it, was that me personally, I saw a greater cooperation between law enforcement agencies and countries. Much better oh, yeah. cooperation. I mean, I, yeah, that's something I wanted to ask you about it. A lot of what you do, like you said earlier, look, I, you know, you were involved in a lot. Not everything was just particular you, but a lot of what happens is coordination. You know, coordinating yeah. not just state, you know, not just U.S. based, local, state, um, local, county, state, other federal agencies, but now you start having international task force and and um, you know. I think JTFs, I think of all these things. And the thing that kind of is a through line in all those, Kurt, is this idea of like, we have a joint working group. Not only are we dealing with, with um, cultures within organizations, 
We could be dealing with language barriers. We could be dealing with people who literally are thinking in a foreign language. They have foreign cultures. They have, I mean, do you have any thoughts or like uh, maybe insider tips for, you know, managing, uh, you know, managing uh, joint efforts? 100%. Um, The two key takeaways that I developed over the years of building liaison and building teams and and making friends, honestly, is that mm-hmm. one, you have to take yourself down a peg sometimes because you may need somebody else more than they need you. So you need to be willing to compromise to an extent mm-hmm. to get their cooperation if their cooperation is going to be a key factor in your success. The second thing, you have to be able to make friends. And I don't mean to be fake. I mean, to be friendly, extend a hand and build a relationship. So towards the end of my career, when I became a supervisor, the people who worked for me would all laugh and joke that oh, I need to find somebody in X or Y police department or, or federal agency because I need their help with X, Y, and Z. Call Kurt. He knows everybody. And that was my running joke. But it was true is I had at least one friend in almost every police department and every federal agency in South Florida. The power that I could call on to assist, you know, and, and I, I prided myself on that. And that, that was part of my ability to, to get things done on a large scale is I had help and I had contacts and friends. You know, it's interesting. I was, I was, uh, I was running a panel at a recent uh, conference. It was about modernization and convergence in the, it came up that perhaps the shift that we've seen in corporate security and maybe executive protection and other things is like, it's, it's more about like, it's as much now about who you know and who you know that knows somebody as, as well as like, what do you know? And I think what you just said speaks to the power of, of developing that network. Like, look, you know, know thyself, you know, manage thy ego and then yes. know, know the, know the relationships that you want. You said making friends, but you know, like, Hey, I don't, I don't, I have a gap here. You know, maybe if you're in the corporate America, I have a gap in HR, or if you're in a public space, like I don't know anybody over at air force special investigations. Well, it's time to make a friend. Exactly. Uh, so that, I mean, that's very powerful, powerful. Yeah. Um, and it's the truth. It's, it's not a, it's not a speech that I prepared for you. That, that is actually how I do business. And to this day, if you were to reach out to any of the people who know me or worked with me, they will all tell you the same thing. And I pride myself on that because again, that was the core of my ability to get stuff done. It wasn't about being fake or playing to people's egos. It was about let us form a partnership. I will not, you know, Mm -hmm. claim credit that I did something when I didn't that you did, you know, none of that. You you explain to people that we are here to, for, to solve a common problem. Yep. And um, I will work with you and I will be an ally. Um, Yeah. That's great. Yeah. Um, it translates, it translates very well to the corporate world, to be honest with you. Now, I want to talk about trans uh, transitioning, but before we get to the transition to the corporate world, I want to ask you like another thing I've, you know, I've seen you on multiple documentaries and I, I think it's okay to, to spoil that you have something else coming out on November 19th that you're in. And uh, what I, what I would like to call, you know, like the pill case, I've seen you pop up again and again, even though, you know, I've heard you talk about uh, insider threat, financial crimes, and all. what is it about the pill case that kind of makes that uh, somewhat of an evergreen topic that you keep getting brought back in to talk about? 
I'm not 100% sure, to be honest with you. It, it was a very impactful investigation. At least the outcome mm -hmm. led to, to good and things. Maybe, happening. Kurt, for those, for those listening in, they're like, wait, wait, I raised my hand. What's the pain? Sure. You know, what's the pill case? Can you give a quick on what it was and, and then maybe answer that? Sure. So um, starting in 2009, I was one of the lead investigators on a case that we at the time nicknamed Oxy Alley, as in the mm -hmm. oxycodone trafficking alley, and that the rest of the world came to know as American pain. Um, it was the single largest street level opioid distribution network in the entire United States. And these people put out more than 20 million doses of opioids in a very short period of time. Wow. And they made in excess of $40 million. And it was a pair of twins. They're actually twin brothers with a loose network of friends and family, about 32 people altogether. So it was a complex investigation for a lot of reasons because pill cases were a little bit different. Nobody in law enforcement was treating them at the time the way we did. Mm -hmm. And we treated it as a RICO investigation. This was organized crime. Yep. And um, we ended up arresting all 32 people. We shut down the network and at least for a time, um, and I will take credit for this. Our team does take credit for this. We, we did slow the rate of deaths from opioid overdose for a short period of time. That's, that's um, incredible. Yeah. It that's was, incredible. it was a five year investigation and it, I guess because of the bizarre nature of the case, yeah, it, it, you're talking about twin brothers, steroid users, party boys, white supremacists, actually, who hired black and Jewish doctors and a variety of street mutt friends of theirs to distribute opioids all the way up from Boston to yeah. as far west as Texas in volumes that would shock the conscience that led to a few thousand deaths from overdose that we're aware of and made a ton of money while they were doing this. And you almost couldn't make the story up. And I'm only touching the surface yeah. about how bizarre this investigation was. So I think it caught the media fancy and attention about just the bizarre nature of this investigation. Well, I think I, I recall seeing you on one of the CNBC uh, uh, documentaries. Was it Painkiller Profits? Was that? It was, uh, yeah, American Greed. If anybody's seen yep. the series American yep. Greed, we did an episode on there called Painkiller Profits. And that was the first national uh, documentary done about the case. And there have been a few others since then. National Geographic has covered it. CNN put out a documentary in February. And there is another one coming out November 19th. Yeah, Discovery Show. Yeah, I'm looking forward to seeing that and uh, seeing a little bit more about your and the team's involvement in that. Now, I'd be remiss if we didn't spend a little time talking about your transition. I mean, talk to me about uh, your your role at, at Mongo and in what you're focused on there. So I am now the director of physical security at MongoDB, and my job is to well, it's a new role. Let me let me be clear about that. The company is still a very young company; they're growing. They look around, they see a problem, they decide to address it. So they hired me to set up their physical security program. So as such, I'm responsible for video surveillance systems, access control systems, mm -hmm. um, staffing my team, obviously, training, doing some policy work, things of that nature. Everything. So, everything, basically, everything. Yeah. So how is your pro? I mean, I'd be curious, like, what's what 
Well, two questions. First question would be, what did you bring with you as you transitioned from the Bureau and from this very uh, methodic approach to your work? And then the obvious second question is like, what did you leave behind and put on the wall and say, I appreciate that, that probably won't won't transit translate? Well, uh, nobody gets uh, arrested at gunpoint uh, at Mongo, which is good, right? So there, there's no more <laughs> like, of that. Yeah, knock on wood. <laughs> no, there's no more of that, right? So um, certain parts of the approach are very different. But what I did bring with me is the liaison building process. Yeah. So the first thing I did when I got to MongoDB is obviously my role is defined. I understood that. But who are my partners? Who are my stakeholders? Yep. Who do I need to reach out to to learn about what their role is in the corporate security program? Because again, when you're some companies, the, the process or the function is very diffused in some companies. So if you want to bring it all under one umbrella, well, who actually has a piece? What exactly are they doing? Mm -hmm. They want to keep doing it. And how do I form a partnership with them to help them to eventually transition sole responsibility to myself? So it was learning the company, learning the roles, learning who's doing what, mm -hmm. and learning how I can make things work here. Because every company is not the same. Depending on what company you transition to from the government, you have to consider the company culture. What are the employees exactly. like? Yeah, exactly. Right? What are their attitudes? Um, what's your budget like? What are your stakeholders all, like? All, all things you made that maybe didn't have to think about at the bureau, like, hey, I've got a budget for this. Or exactly. what's your budget for this? What? Exactly. What do you mean budget? Yes. And how do you work within that budget, right? Because you know it's not an unlimited budget. So you have to be able to plan accordingly, whether it comes to equipment selection, uh, vendor services, you may want certain things, but you have to wait until you have the funding for that. Um, sure. And then understanding like your priorities and overlaying them with the corporate or the organizational priorities. So you can say, hey, look, this is where we align. Here's my, uh, you know, here's my budget ask. Here's maybe a delta. I, I'm really hoping to get the things on on top of the delta. And I realize that some of these things below it may not come to fruition at all. Exactly. And then the other big thing you're doing when you transition is there's going to be an education portion, right? Yeah. When I say education, I mean, you're going to be not only you're educating yourself, but you're teaching because there are certain things you take for granted when you're in the government or when you're in law enforcement or military, right? You understand certain things at a fundamental level when it comes to danger, right? <laughs> so yeah, for sure. Um, I take those things for granted, but there's some very, very smart people in tech. The vast majority of my coworkers are brilliant people at MongoDB, yeah. but their, their experiences, career experiences, and life experiences are different than mine. So it's my job to explain to them why something is or is not a good idea. And my approach is very important, right? You're not coming in there yelling at people or you have to treat them as partners and explain very carefully and in great detail why it is that you want to do something and the potential downsides of not doing what it is that you're, you're promoting. Yeah, that's interesting because, you know, you, one could say in the government, we have a mandate. You thou shalt do this because there's a piece of paper or legal document that says so and it's enforceable, where a lot of times in the corporation, there's maybe some that's mandated by a board or perhaps a CEO. And like you said, somebody that's identified there's a risk, we need to go after it. But at the end of the day, I mean, 
you probably spend a lot of your time articulating the risk in language that your uh, stakeholders will understand. Absolutely. You're right. We, we got to, education wise, we got to le- learn, you know, we need information and language, common and information and language to get us a common operating picture to bring all these folks to the table and say, I really need to solve this. Can we all agree that it looks, you know, agree on the way we're going to agree up, agree on the approach vector, if you will, to solve it. Sorry to make that so more complex than it needs to be. No, no. You, and you, you brought up a very good point, right? It's um, part of the issue is the explanation and the educating mm-hmm. and framing it in language, not to say that, that people can understand, because again, especially if you're in tech, you're dealing with very smart people, yeah. but you want to put it in terms that are more real to them. So that process actually starts from before. One of the things I talk to a lot of agents nowadays who are getting ready to retire, and I explain to them that the first thing you have to do is get a professionally done resume and don't do it government style, right? You and I both know government style, oh, yes. a chronological yeah. order. No, your resume is supposed to be a marketing tool and it right. has to be treated as such. And the thing to do on the resume is to be able to find the right language that explains what you did in the government in terms that somebody who is not a government or law enforcement person can understand. So they understand this person could be valuable to me. I I see the skill set here, right? Yeah, you see that a lot in the military folks too. Like, look, I I get it. You went to sniper school. Somebody may not say that that makes them nervous, but it might. And, you know, walk through maybe what that means. Like, look, I have advanced planning you know, organizational planning, administration, and logistical planning for complex operations. Exactly. That's kind of the takeaway. Um, What's, so the new documentary that you're in is coming out November 19th. Uh, I think you can still find like from Rush With Lives, Painkiller Profits, and I think the National Geographic one episode was Chasing the Dragon. Correct. It was was called Chasing the Dragon. Yep. And, and that, uh, it, that was recent, wasn't it? A couple that years was ago. Very recent. Yeah. yeah, that came out. Uh, that aired last in 2022. I want to say yeah. October somewhere thereabouts. So it's still in National Geographic's roster. The CNN one came out in February. That was that was called American Pain. Yep. And uh, this newest one is going to be on Investigation Discovery. I believe Discovery is actually it's a new series on Discovery called Feds. So it's oh, a cool. series of episodes about federal investigations and they're calling this episode tentatively it's going to be called uh prescription for death oh wow uh very dramatic. yeah very dramatic, but it gets to the point right um but yeah it's it's uh it should be interesting I'm, I'm looking forward to seeing it so kurt as people are possibly you know in expectation now of this the new documentary coming out that you'll be in i mean how if they want to reach out to you or they have questions or maybe, Hey, I'm, you know, I'm coming out of uh, the bureau and I'd, I'd love to get a hold of you and, and have a discussion. What's the best way for people to do that? I tell everybody the easiest way to find me is LinkedIn. Um, I check my LinkedIn fairly regularly. Um, and I, you know, I'm always willing to talk to uh, new partners and new stakeholders. So LinkedIn's the easiest way to reach me. Awesome. I love that. And I love know thyself and make relationships awesome. Absolutely. Kurt, thank you so much for being on Ontic's Protective Intelligence Podcast, my friend. Thank you, Chuck. It was great talking to you again. Uh, I look forward to talking to you again in the near future.
This episode was brought to you by the Ontic Center for Connected Intelligence. Learn more at ontic.co slash center. Again, that's ontic.co backslash center. It was produced by AJ McKeon. Our music is a track called Monteverde Ride, and it was written by Brian Bristow and performed by the Smokin' Novas. Check them out on Spotify. Please remember to rate and review our podcast on iTunes and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you have questions, we'd love to hear them. You can reach us at podcast at ontic.co or visit ontic.co backslash center for more information. Thanks for listening.